Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. In this podcast, I'll be bringing you the finest writers, poets and thinkers from across the globe, on stage and backstage at Europe's largest art centre. We'll also bring you some occasional gems from our archive of recordings stretching back many years. In this episode, we're going to talk about mental health. We'll feature Matt Haig when he was here at Southbank Centre last month. He talks about experiencing years of anxiety and panic attacks, and he's channeled that into his fantastical fiction and his taboo-breaking books on mental health. I'm also here with musician and campaigner Jordan Stevens, a man of many talents. Jordan first burst onto the scene as half of hip-hop duo Rizzle Kicks, and has since then defied expectations and turned his hand to a range of projects, from his solo act Wildhood to challenging stigma and discussing mental health. You've been here at Being a Man Festival, Jordan, and you spoke really eloquently about inherited ideas of manhood and toxic masculinity. Uh, so you've also fronted campaigns for the YMCA and NHS, I am whole, which is the hashtag. So Jordan, you were catapulted to fame uh, around the time of your first album with Rizzle Kicks. Yeah. And you've spoken really openly since then about your battle with addiction and your own mental health. Yeah. What made you want to speak openly about that? I have always been quite a an open person. I speak without thinking. I'm very impulsive. So often I haven't really given myself enough choice as to whether or not I want to say something. So to that extent, I think wh- whatever I experience, I'm probably going to say <laughs> in some kind of way. When, when, you, when you started talking about it, yeah. did you then realise that there were certain things that were considered to be taboo about mental health? Um, even though you were open well so the story the story w- goes that I wasn't too aware of my own mental health for a while so like I so saw during Rizzle Kicks second album vibes there was some personal stuff that happened to me my ex-girlfriend's brother killed himself and it was like a really mad situation to be in and the next few months were spent grieving but supporting someone grieving there was a lot tied up in that. But meanwhile, I was needing to promote this um, happy hip-hop band, you know? I had kind of accidentally become a pop star. And I say I say that in to the extent that um, I really believe that a pop star and a musician are two different careers. But there's something a little bit more that's take, demanded of you as a pop star. M- more, you're supposed to be there a lot. You're supposed to smile a lot. It's performative, I think. I find it really difficult and I needed an outlet for that. Wildhood, which is essentially me, my my dad, and this guy Tommy D, was created to find, give me an outlet to talk about the sadness I felt that I couldn't put through Rizzle Kicks. So it was in that space that I was just saying how I felt. I wasn't necessarily conscious of the reality that I was being open. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. Yeah. One of the things you just said there about the expectations that were placed on you yeah. when you were, you know, as you say, accidentally became a pop star. Yeah. It seems like one of the things you've been articulating over the last few years in your in your TED talk and your articles you've written and at Being a Man Festival is the different levels of expectation that have been placed on you in different ways. So as a pop star, as a man, yeah, 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 these yeah. are things that you have really decide, as you just said there like uh, you you felt like you needed to speak up about and yeah so it was the man thing came about a little later i think the mental health thing came first so did you realize you had this moment of low ebb and you were writing these songs about depression and breakup was it that moment where you thought actually it's masculinity as well that's making it harder for me 
Um, I think like I think I feel as though there's there are different stages to life, or there's different arenas in existence. As a kid, I grew up mostly with my mum. My dad was around, but when your idol is your mum, you pick up on their energy sometimes, you know. So it, my mum, my mum was incredibly supportive and encouraging and wonderful and lovely. But if she felt you know, sad or stressed, I'd probably pick up on it, you know? And this stuff has kind of latent effects depending on how you deal with it. And I'd kind of got into a place of hyper-creativity quite young. For a long part of my adult life, I haven't really felt anything, honestly. I'm sensitive, but I would suppress things. Like, sadness, I just wasn't bothered. I considered myself to be the person who was like the one people lean on, and I enjoyed it. I liked being of service because I suppose it would help me keep away from myself in a way. And I suppose that always in my back of my mind there were always fears or always thoughts that there was something else there that I wasn't really listening to. In intimate relationships, I was there was a massive, massive issue. I was, I'd say emotionally abusive to some extent from a place of ignorance, I'd say, or um, a lack of understanding, miscommunication, this kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I, I had my the girl I'm with now. There was just a when that the next stage of our relationship came about, it was just uh, all hell broke loose, man. Don't know mm. to explain it. It was just everything I'd kind of run away from was coming back at me, mm. and it destroyed our relationship basically. And and it, it hit me hard. And it was in that moment that I was like, why is this hit me so hard? That was the, the question I asked. Wasn't what have I done? You know, I, I listen. I fucked up. You know what I mean? I and I had a lot to hold myself accountable to, just in how I treated someone in my intimate space. That's it, and how I treated myself actually, which is kind of one of the same. But my question I asked myself was, why does this hurt so much? Pain is a part of life, but you can carry on. Or you understand grief, but you can carry on. And I, I just deduced that it was because I'd never been in an environment that had encouraged me to be open. Mm. And moreover, I didn't have an idea of, of how to get away from it. It wasn't like my my guy mates were suddenly like, oh, I know what to do, let's crowd around him. Even the friends would be helpful, I'd have a resistance, do you know what I mean? So all this stuff was unraveling and I was thinking, ah, oh, there's something odd about this. And then I looked back and went, I added all this together. And it's like, all the ways I'd acted, where I didn't like myself. Is, is another phrase for that toxic masculinity? Well, the, the reason I've, I, used, I used that term is because when Me Too properly kicked off, it was around this time when I was like seriously like, whoa, having to take a moment to look at myself and realize I'd hurt people. And I, I was working through my own wound and I felt as though in my mind at that point, what defined toxic masculinity was the fact that we all have wounds, regardless of gender. But quite often a male wound will get worse and worse because of something as simple as crying. So this is the thing, this is the thing where it can be tossed to the side by some people who are terrified of the notion. But if you just remove all remove all stigma from that, just the actual act action of crying is a release. And it's like if you are resisting that, if you're inauthentic to your feelings. I just kept seeing, I was thinking of my friends who had been in destructive relationships or 
films or these characters or extreme cases like Harvey Weinstein and da 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 da. Even you know, and with someone as as horrific as Harvey Weinstein, when he comes out and says it's because of his childhood, I I believe him. I don't think he's any. I don't think he's any better. I think he's awful. I think he should go to prison. It's horrendous. He needs to be held accountable. But it's that wound, you know. And I had my own version of it, and that was actually this year. It was like I felt something when I was younger, and I wasn't in a right headspace to be able to not allow that wound to affect others negatively. But we also live in a world that will support the male. That's what I thought, and I, I'm, all my opinions are fluid. But I felt that most resonated with me because if I want to, if I want to be destructive and abusive, I've got like years of Hollywood narrative and years of all this stuff backing me. But if a woman wants to be, which women also go through this exact same thing, it's either actively dissuaded or shamed. There's so much in what you've just said there that I want to get into. Sorry, yeah. Um, and but I want I want to weave in. Um, some clips from Matt Haig's event because yes, I think there's lots which chimes with what you're saying. So Matt Haig came to South Bank Centre recently. It was actually on his 43rd birthday. Um, he was wearing a Caribbean shirt dotted with palm trees to celebrate. He has experienced years of anxiety and panic attacks, um, a bit like you were describing, Jordan. And these are questions that have become really urgent matters of life and death for him. He is someone who has really been to the brink and also someone who writes very openly about the fact that this is not a done deal for him. You know, he is still in a process of every day is a constant attempt to find some kind of balance. He found solace and expression through his fiction, first of all, and then through these books, which are extremely candid about his own challenges um, in these memoirs. Notes on a Nervous Planet is a follow-up to the number one bestseller, Reasons to Stay Alive. And it's a personal look at how the world is rewiring our minds and what we can do about it in this age of anxiety. It's a book for anyone who's perpetually welded to their phone or laptop, which is pretty much all of us, and even in sentence-long chapters or lists, it shows what's happening to our inner lives in the 21st century. Matt Haig is also the best-selling author of six highly acclaimed novels, including How to Stop Time and The Humans. He's speaking here to Telegraph journalist, author, and fellow mental health campaigner, Bryony Gordon. It's not actually the writing I find hard. It's the thinking about it after the event the wondering how it's going to it's putting yourself out there. You know, when you get a re review for a book or about yourself, mm. you feel like you're being literally... It's this bit that you hate the most. This bit, right, right. here. Not, yes. <laughs> this is okay because it's my birthday and I'm wearing a Hawaiian you shirt. Oh, it's lovely. And I went for it and it's fine. But, um, yeah, there comes a point where... I don't know, there was a moment when Reasons to Stay Alive was doing really well and I was getting lots of lovely emails from people, but I was in the midst of a bout of anxiety and I was walking around my house in circles, thinking I was having a heart attack, nearly being, going back into sort of agoraphobia again. People were saying, oh, your books um, helped me. And I was thinking, oh, why didn't it help me? And why, why am I still, you know, in this position? And it, it took a while to sort of process that. And one thing I hope about the books I've written is, and the books you've written are the same, I think, as well, I'm not writing from the higher ground. You know, they're not sort of self-help books in the sense that I've got all the answers. I've hopefully got a lot of questions and stuff, but I'm definitely not in a, you know, I'm never in a position of 100% mental or physical perfect health. So Jordan, as Matt talks about there, he's not 
the finished article, this is a constant balancing act for him. He also talks about that experience of overload. You know, when when he's made a when he's written a book and it goes out into the world, that that can be quite a discombobulating, overwhelming experience when when that happens. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that you you make your work first, and then you know you it comes out, and then it makes its way out into the world. What has been your experience of overload? How do you deal with it in your music and in your life? I, I, I resonate with, with what Matt Haig says about the kind of confusion he has in regards to someone else's interpretation of his own work because mm-hmm. I, I, I've had a big barrier up with Rizzle Kicks where I didn't understand why so many fans were, admire it, were, adm- were in admiration of me because I didn't really feel that way about myself which at the time and now I realise it's quite sad but at the time I, I just didn't get it I was kind of like I didn't understand why they didn't feel that way about them why they weren't like you know because I remember yeah. thinking you know you can do you can do what you want to like you can just at the mo- I have a resistance to that question at the moment because I feel like I could be doing more actually uh, um, this is like the slowest my life's ever been I think my therapist put it quite well once she said anxiety for the most part has been my petrol the whole idea is I'm actually driven by wanting to overload myself with work and whatnot, and not really acknowledging where it's going or, or what it means but I think what I'm learning at the moment in life is, is the it's the beauty of patience and to not put so much pressure on myself. It's interesting because I think one of the things you do share with Matt is that he talks in this next clip about periods of wellness and how that can also be a kind of paradoxical challenge. Like when he's feeling well, mm. that can in some ways um, be a time where he might slip into something more serious and that his mental health might take a turn. Um, yeah. And he also talks here about the way that the internet can be both a way of connecting but also can be a tempting way of creating distraction and even conflict. So I'd love to talk to you in a moment after this about the internet. When I'm ill, I, I actually can be quite wise and careful and you know when I'm feeling really too stressed I, I suddenly know how I should be living and then I can do everything because the stakes are suddenly high. But what I have a problem with is wellness and sort of looking after myself when everything is sort of superficially fine. That's when I don't um, live the way I should. That's when I can spend, um, you know, stay up till three in the morning or drink too much or um, spend seven hours arguing with a flag on Twitter. someone I'll never meet but is managing to ruin my weekend just because I'm engaging in this kind of pointless um, political row about something. When I started to notice I was using the internet badly is when I was using it to just distract myself from thinking. So it'd often be when I was feeling stressed out about something. Um, Not necessarily mental illness but just feeling generally normally stressed. I would use it to take myself out of it. And I'd even, I think, I'd even start arguments with people just as a way to create some kind of external conflict because there's so much inner stuff going on. So to have something external to worry about. Like, going back a few years, where we used to live in York, and I can remember one moment where I, I definitely felt the kind of wisps of depression sort of crowding in like a, like a, like a mist. And... Um, I was convinced, you know, day after day, it was getting worse, it was getting worse, it was getting worse. And there was nothing that could take me out of it. I was doing the running, I was doing yoga, I was doing everything I should be doing. I was eating well, going to bed. 
And then what happens is our house flooded um, because we lived by the river. And um, it was just a sort of micro crisis, but it, it cost us lots of money, it damaged the house, it was a big upheaval for me, Andrea, and the kids and everything. But we had something real world to suddenly there in front of us, the literal natural elemental world sort of poured in. And then I, I forgot that I was in the middle of worrying that I was about to be depressed. It wouldn't have got me out of depression, but it got me out of that worry that I was going to be depressed because suddenly it just switched um, my attention into the present, a negative present, but it, it, it kind of was the therapy I needed. Jordan, what, what's your relationship with the internet? Matt's talking there about temptation of going online and kind of picking a fight or it also being a way of connecting with people. The I Am Whole campaign, which is obviously largely online, right? And that's something you're passionate about. You believe in that being something that the internet can do. But also I wonder if in those darker periods of your life up to now, has the internet been a, a... a source for good in your life or has it been something that is actually well, the, the internet the internet is wonderful Rizzle kicks we, we, we really kicked off for, for YouTube you know we were actually before Instagram I remember having that conversation the record label were like you got to use this Instagram thing you know and I was like absolutely not <laughs> I remember being like absolutely not because I don't want anyone knowing about my life I remember do you know, do you know I think that's such a bizarre state of affairs in terms of like influential people that there's no mystery anymore I just or a curated version which is even weirder Mm. the fact that I am whole established itself so boldly on Instagram really was actually one of the most amazing aspects of social media for me and in that sense yeah there's the the sense of community you can find is wonderful I'm personally going through my own relationship with it which I think is is an actual reflection of my own relationship with myself and I feel sad sometimes that people can be affected negatively by it yeah it's it's interesting because it is there are studies that show and and Matt Haig writes about this in notes on a nervous planet that show that social media in particular has a negative effect on people's mental health and Mm. that it's a bit like you just said there that it's partly the curation that people do presentation of a front of something which is kind of like this is me and my perfect life but the amazing thing about something like I am whole is that it it can puncture that same thing it can be a space where actually as well people well I've met I've made I've I've made some quite large musical connection the I'm whole thing was essentially started from me tweeting someone you know what I mean mm. it's powerful it's a powerful tool especially on the minds of young people. But we were, you know, the whole, we've already spoken about that within the charity itself, about being part of like mindful switch off periods where we, you know, kind of suggest that everyone just takes a moment away from their phone and detoxes. I really, 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 really want there to be a, a pushback against the advances of technology. Part of me worries, and I'm doing some research into this now, but like, there's an intellectual superiority going on amidst, I don't know, what's that, Silicon Valley or whatever. <laughs> whatever, I don't know where in the world. Where all the big tech robotics. Yeah. yeah, where it's like, they're preying on like the most weak, vulnerable aspects of, of the human mind. And I, I desperately want humanity to, to, to maintain its essence 
and like looking someone in the eyes or like sitting down alone are like massive aspects of being a human being. If I was able to carve almost a, a, psych, a cyclical way of performing and being seen or heard or received or whatever that didn't involve social media, I would probably consider coming off it too. Yeah, I mean, one of the lines that um, stuck out for me in the book um, about social media that Matt writes is that on social media, we're potatoes pretending to be crisps. Yeah. And that you, you said earlier when you were, in the early days of Rizzle Kicks, you felt that you didn't like some of the admiration that you got because yeah. it, it was that maybe you were in that same kind of mindset that you were, you felt that there was a version of you that wasn't really being expressed at that point, even though you you loved the music and you were brilliant. Yeah, 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 totally. I think like, I don't know, I just, the way I, the reason why I never, I didn't think I was cut out to be a pop star was because my notion of creativity is like one of kind of torture. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? I, I feel as though you're you're ex excavating a part of yourself and like you don't even know if you like it. Like, that, you know, you just you just it's just a bit of an odd thing. Mm. People are like, "Yo, this is great," and you're like, "Oh, it's great that you think it's great." There's the a self assurity that came with presenting yourself in public that I wasn't so good with. I resonated more with with the, the type of person who was constantly unsure about what it was they were even doing in the first place. In some ways, what you went through was like a more extreme and more public version of what a lot of young people go through. Yeah, these these questions I so I, I quiz myself on all the time. I don't think there's an answer really, but there's just different feelings. A friend once said to me, you know, Jordan, if you hadn't have been so scruffy when you first came out, you'd have had a Burberry contract within like a year or whatever. And then part of me's like, oh, I would have liked a Burberry contract. Do you know what I mean? Because I like, you know, it's like British and they make good clothes and that. But I remember why we were scruffy, because I didn't care. Do you know what I mean? Like, literally, I remember me and Hals didn't care what we were wearing. We, we just like, we know, I think people thought we had cool caps on and we used to wear scruffy trainers because I used to, I used to, it used to blow my mind that people had clean trainers. I didn't understand how, because you just walk around and then they're dirty. Like, how do you not do that? You know, this whole life of like luxury, I, I'd never even aspired to, didn't understand it. Only time I've ever, I'd ever been lavish was literally to experience the feeling of being lavish. It wasn't even to experience what I was buying. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Uh, which is potentially the reason why anyone's lavish, but maybe not consciously. I don't know. I think we do, we definitely need more potatoes on show. <laughs> one of, one of the things that you described there about just wearing trainers because you're wearing trainers and not having like a pristine set of trainers at home is that it's a kind of happiness to not compare yourself constantly to others. And Matt writes about that again in the book and he talks about how one of the reasons maybe we're so unhappy these days and that mental illness is on the rise is that we're in a kind of comparative culture. Almost certainly, almost certainly. I've done, I've done, honestly, that's when I feel my worst as well. Mm. Yeah, you feel inadequate in seeing someone else. I've always wanted to say, I've always, since becoming famous and getting lo like more money than I, than I could have imagined and stuff, and then experiencing a conscious decision to move away from that, um, and this difference between the two and what I missed and what I didn't miss and all this kind of stuff. That idea of shit, of stress, it just shifts. And I really believe that like it's totally subjective. I can't emphasize that enough to people. So a lot of the questions people ask me straight away is like, yo, what about the money, do you know what I mean? Before having a major breakdown last year, you know, 
the, one of the saddest moments of my life was at a point when I, I, I just bought a house. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense, does it? Like, I remember I was truly, I felt truly alone and I was famous and I just bought property in London. So I, I don't know how I managed to end up on that from you asking me if it's dodgy to compare yourself on Instagram, but I did. That's really interesting. I mean, it, I guess partly what you're saying is that it's, that, that happiness is relative and that you can be deeply unhappy in like mater great material wealth. I just don't think, I don't think, I, I think our perception of happiness just doesn't make any sense. Right. It honestly doesn't make any sense. I really, what I intuitively feel is that our society's notion of pain and sadness is is at the root of why people are less happy. Because if we were to consider pain and sadness just a step to a flavor in the bowl of peace and joy, then we, would, we wouldn't resist it. Do you know what I mean? A lot of these things pass. Yeah. So I think, you know, say for example, let's go, let me try and actually tie into what you actually asked me. <laughs> if I was to go, if I was to go on Instagram and I'd go, I'd flick up a picture and I'd see, you know, and it happens to me sometimes and I see a particular musician and they look cool and maybe a brand has backed them. And they're, and they're sitting with another artist who is also cool and they're at an award ceremony for a prestigious music songwriting award ceremony, you know, I could, it could bring all this stuff to me, right? And it can go like, ah, like, I don't think I'm cool, I haven't written good enough songs, I haven't got a friendship like that, and da, 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 all these things, right? But I, I have a, maybe have a choice in that moment to be like, I either identify with these fears and allow them to inform what I do going forward, which is like, I'll have a drink, I'll have a donut, I'll carry on scrolling, I'll upload my own Instagram, or I'll go, what's at the root of that? And then you go, I'm sad that I'm not making the music that I wanna make. And then you just feel it, and then it goes. Mm. And the more you feel that, the quicker, when that comes up, you go, you f you, your dream, the dream is to get to a place where you look at that and go, oh man, he looks wicked. What a wicked award show. I hope he wins. And then you just move on with your day. And it, that's it. We can get to that place. It's, it's just, you know, we, I think we're, we want that, what we're trying to cultivate in society in talking about stuff. When we provide solution like that, we'll be somewhere towards it. I think we'll go, we'll head there. Jordan, you brilliantly distilled what you think is the kind of dream of happiness. And we're gonna hear a final clip from Matt Haig, which is actually a brief extract from the book, Notes on a Nervous Planet, in which he talks about his definition of happiness. How to be happy two, because there's another how to be happy one in the book, which you don't need to have read, <laughs> obviously. Don't compare your actual self to a hypothetical self. Don't drown in a sea of what ifs. Don't clutter your mind by imagining other versions of you in parallel universes where you made different decisions. The internet age encourages choice and comparison, but don't do this to yourself. Comparison is the thief of joy, said Theodore Roosevelt. You are you, the past is the past. The only way to make a better life is from inside the present. To focus on regret does nothing but turn that very present into another thing you will wish you did differently. Accept your own reality. Be human enough to make mistakes. Be human enough 
not to dread the future. Be human enough to be, well, enough. Accepting where you are in life makes it so much easier to be happy for other people without feeling terrible about yourself. Yeah. That seems like it, it's another version of what you just said, really. Yeah, yeah well, I think a state of peace isn't, isn't within anything. It's like a constant fluidity. One of, you know, one of the, my favorite quotes is from Bruce Lee, when someone said, if you had the choice, always be water, because it's fluid. It adapts to it, whatever surface it touches. I understand that because, you know, it, life is, a, is like a myriad of emotion and it's just about whether or not you've given yourself the space and the tools to just kind of journey through all of them knowing that everything will be okay in one way or another um, and, that, and that, like, pain is okay. It's, it's okay to be happy. It's okay to, for people to like you. It's okay to like yourself. That's actually a massive one, isn't it? that a lot of internalized self-hatred going knocking about you know there's a lot of um i and 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 self wrapped up in in the kind of incredibly consumerist world that we live in the t twist i want to have on it is i think there is a way to live both genuinely like that's what i say i think there will be a space where even you know on social media i will enjoy something unattached to the kind of reverse effect it can have on me you know to f experience love for all, for all others, it can happen. In your TEDx Brighton oh, tour yeah. you do, one of the bits that I uh, particularly enjoyed was, I think it was at the Brent Talent Show when you were oh, younger. Yeah. What, Cisco? Cisco, when you, you performed some Cisco. And yeah. I wanted, <laughs> and uh, knock them dead, although you don't show us as much of the clip as I would like. Yeah, in I'll that. fast forward it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered, I mean, you know, obviously you discovered at that point that you love performing and yeah. you're a natural performer. But having talked to you about some of the ideas of success we talked about there with like, you know, the rapper who's got the kind of perfect career and, and everything else going for them. I'm just wondering, obviously, you, when you were a little boy performing those Cisco songs, you had this idea of like being that rapper, right? And I wonder what you might go back and say to yourself now. What well, you know. Cisco, firstly, was a phenomenal soul, neo-soul singer. Let's get that straight. Sorry, neo-soul singer, sorry. Although I'm sure he could rap if he really tried. Maybe he does rap on a few songs. He had a wicked voice. Yeah! <laughs> I, the irony of that, I, 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 I'm supposed to be writing this book, which has taken me a while because I don't know currently how to write from a place of calm and sobriety, but <laughs> I'm trying. Um... <laughs> Is that, but, is that how you have to write? I don't know, maybe you don't have to write like that. Well, I mean, you know, I wrote this, a lot of the stuff around masculinity when I was just in incredible emotional pain. You know, it's mm -hmm. like a proper cathartic release. And now I'm not so much in that, you know, and I feel maybe when I was wrote in the past, I was in sus suspended states of pain where I was mm -hmm. feeling it, but wasn't conscious of it, you know? Mm -hmm. So being conscious of it and also doing something in the way of healing it, I'm like, how do I write? <laughs> but anyway one of the things I was considering writing about was the fact that you know I, I, I'm essentially singing an incredibly misogynistic song as well at the time song <laughs> like, song it's yeah. <laughs> like see I think the funny thing he says is dun 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 you know I'm trying to let old ladies know what guys talk about <laughs> and dun, 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 you know the finer things in life <laughs> check it out <laughs> that's literally how he starts the song and it's like ooh that dress so scandalous 
I mean, one, one look of the in the eyes of devilish or something. Yeah, yeah. just um, likening them like to you, devils as well. Yeah, <laughs> but what's so yeah 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 what's so funny is that like you know I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about at that age. <laughs> in fact, he drops the M word in that, and I remember I, I I bought his album Unleashed the Dragon and opened up the um thing. And I think it was all starred as like N star 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 star. And I remember going to my mum who's white. <laughs> It's like, mum, what's that N word? What's that word? Is it is it knickers? And she was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking like, when do I have to get into telling him about what? He's <laughs> but um, so I thought you were saying knickers for ages, which actually made sense in the context of thumbs yeah. up. But um, it's quite a British version in a way. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I remember he says, you got she got dumps like a truck. I even I can even remember thinking like like visually picturing trucks. Yeah, I still picture. <laughs> like I, didn't, I, would, I never pictured a woman <laughs> ever. I was like, she got thumbs like a truck. I was like, oh, that trucks. I was like, I was on the truck. Yeah. <laughs> I was on the truck thing. I totally got the wrong end of the simile, but like, so yeah, I, I think I think. I think it, it was could be in a, like it could be like a kid's poem it was, song when you like, Yeah, I know, I know. It was never it was never oh yeah, it was never his lifestyle that I aspired mm. to. You know, it was just he had silver hair and he and he and he and he loved dragons from what I can remember. I was into like kicks and stuff. Mm. <laughs> I can't explain it. I just wasn't I I was such a bizarre little kid that I just and my mum brought me so I was basically born into marching. I think I, I felt like I felt like my mum gave birth to me and then we just walked into an anti-war protest. Like, it's got its blessings and the curses because I'm also having to have therapy to kind of untangle some of the stuff I learned. But like, but in the more proactive things, like my mum would say one thing to me at an age where I was totally impressionable. So I'd be like, oh yeah, you know? But then I'd get to adulthood and I'd found myself saying it and not having absolutely no idea why, you know? So in some ways, it's kind of a double-edged thing that you can have a strong parent, a strong mother, but that, that can kind of create a different set of expectations. Yeah. Um, you've talked a lot about how in some ways you, you kind of are the change you want to see in the sense that you are addressing um, things and looking at these challenges that you've got in your own mental health. And having been through all of that process, I'm just wondering when you look out in the world and when you speak to people and when you look at the media and the way things are going and when you hear someone like Matt Haig talking about mental health, do you think that things are getting better? Do you think that there is a sort of tidal shift? Do you think people are opening up a little bit more about it? You've obviously been one of the people who's been more willing than most to open up and talk about these yeah. things and that's been fantastic. But I just wonder how you think the rest of us are doing. I think that there is a pendulum swinging. We're coming out of an age of order and stoicism, I think. And we're kind of going into a place of like utmost expression, which I'm a full advocate for. But I do think there's gonna it needs to settle, but only after having explored it. So what I'm trying to say, so I stop talking in, in cryptic code, is that I really believe in there being an open discussion around mental health, and I love it, and I think it's clearly improving in regards to um, people feeling as though it's safe to say that they feel certain things but I want there to be action to support it so that it doesn't become commodified, which which is already ha happens a little bit anyway. I think we need to navigate the world 
carefully. But to open up a conversation about the fact that people are different and that it's okay to feel these things, that's dope, you know? And I really hope that, I think when male suicide rates start to drop, then that'll be great. But I think that that'll come from a place where we've all spoken out and identified and realized that it's the individuality amongst us that's amazing and that we're all responsible for our own journey and path. The sooner we we fall into a state where feeling is is seen as like admirable, or or for someone to feel comfortable around you, the the selling point for it is you know this idea of love or connection or family, and being emotionally attentive and but still having space for yourself and and understanding and balancing your life. It's like the idea is once you find that place, then anything that happens is great. And I think I want everyone to experience that. John, thank you so much for all your insights and your honesty. My and pleasure. Coming and hanging out in the bangs and squeaks of the South Banks recording studio. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> you can hear past episodes of the podcast at southbankcentre.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And you can listen to more of what goes on at Think Aloud, the podcast that sheds light on the exciting things happening in the arts. I'm Harriet Fitch-Little from the Southbank Centre's Think Aloud podcast. In the latest episode, which we're recording in the middle of a heatwave outside the Queen Elizabeth Hall, we'll be talking to Southbank Centre literary programmer Devo Ammon about whether the novel is in crisis. We'll also be hearing from Catelyn Moran about why she wishes sex was written about in a very different way. And Ted hops over to join us to answer our burning question, how do you judge a book award? And yes, I make an appearance and can't stress the quality of this episode enough. If you haven't had enough of listening to my voice over the last 45 minutes, do tune in to Think Aloud. It's brilliant and the presenter is fab.